the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Skeptics may view the national and corporate rush to announce long-term net zero emission goals amid the COP26 climate summit as lacking substance. They may argue that net zero is not zero and suggest that the pledges being tossed around like confetti are paper thin. And they would be right. The majority of environmental, social and governance policies being bandied around the maritime sector right now lack substance. But the growing gulf between the climate promises being made by global consumer brands and the industry's projected timeline to deliver on those expectations should, in my humble opinion, be viewed as a significant risk for everybody in the business of shipping. The fact that the likes of Amazon, Ikea and Unilever have stated bluntly that they will not be chartering ships that are not net zero by 2040 has almost been forgotten, such as the volume of zero-carbon pledges over recent days. But the footnote in this pledge regarding liquefied natural gas is worth recalling. This coalition of heavyweight cargo interests explicitly called out LNG dual-fueled vessels as unacceptable, along with the creative carbon accounting options better known by the name of carbon offsets. As far as they're concerned, zero-carbon fuel literally does mean zero-carbon fuel. In other words, it must be produced with no greenhouse gas emissions whatsoever on a life-cycle basis, with all safety and land-use concerns addressed. I know, who would have thought it? Now, that's not an isolated move. In April, the World Bank specifically recommended that countries pull back from investing in further LNG bunkering infrastructure, citing concerns regarding methane slip amongst several reasons for its anti-LNG stance. A stance, incidentally, that it is now submitted to the IMO for consideration later this month. The LNG debate is certainly not a new one, but Such high-profile statements have inevitably fired up the pro-LNG lobby, who argue, with some justification, that we should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. After all, the alternative of continuing to burn highly polluting oil-based marine fuels while waiting for net-zero supply chains to magically appear is less an environmental strategy and more of a case of industrial paralysis. So... Given our recent airings of arguments that have challenged LNG's position in the shipping industry's future, I felt it only fair to offer the counter-argument this week. Peter Keller is the chairman of CLNG, the multi-sector industry coalition advocating for LNG as a marine fuel throughout the entire value chain. And he joins me on the podcast this week to discuss why he thinks LNG sceptics have got it so wrong. I started by asking him what he thought about the bad press that LNG has been getting of late. Well, as with as with all things, uh, there are facts and then there are opinions. And what we try to do is, is we try to work with facts. Um, if you look at LNG today, it is available, it's scalable. Uh, in the uh, in the high pressure systems, it provides about a 23% uh, reduction in carbon, uh, and that's net of any slip. Um, and and that's a start down the path. Mm. And as we move down our LNG pathway, we then we then see bioproducts, which are starting to come into um, in, into some supply. And and then ultimately we see uh, renewable or synthetic LNG, which frankly is also off of a hydrogen base 
and is really the same product as, as any of the other uh, so-called green fuels of the future. Mm. The, the important issue is that LNG is available today. And the real question is, do we want to take benefits now or by 23%, it's not 100%. And do we want to then introduce bioproducts as many LNG users are doing? And then eventually uh, the synthetic products, the, uh, the renewable products uh, that man experimented with, uh, with the uh, West Amelie vessel uh, not too long ago. So it's really an issue, I believe, of, of what is practical and what makes sense. If we do nothing over the next decade while we're waiting for these untried uh, magic elixirs, if you will, uh, we, 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 we risk doing more damage than we've already done. And, and we don't believe that that's, that's viable. We also believe, however, that just as there's a basket of fuels today, and it has been for decades, you know, to, the industry today uses uh, various uh, uh, levels of, of, of sulfur fuels. They use MGO, MDO, uh, they use fuels for turbines. So there's always been a basket of fuels. And it's very important that we remember that as we go forward. There is not one fuel that is going to solve all of Maritime's issues. Not one. It, there will be a basket of fuels. There will be room for, for all the fuels that people talk about if they come together in a safe and viable fashion. And the only fuel right now that is proven safe, that is proven viable, is uh, liquefied natural gas. Entirely understood. And, uh, you know, I think if we were talking a few years back, that was certainly the dominant voice in the industry. But over the last six to 12 months, I would say, you have seen a real shift in the perception of how LNG is viewed in that debate, because it is still carbon, it is still a transitional pathway. And I don't think anybody has suggested otherwise, but the timelines are speeding up. Whereas before the IMO was you know, looking somewhat unambitiously at reducing the overall uh, emissions of the fleet uh, by at least 50% by 2050. We're now facing overwhelming calls to reduce to net zero by 2050 and many looking uh, to go a little bit faster. And certainly when we see the likes of Amazon and Ikea and Unilever coming out and saying, we will not charter vessels that are powered by LNG after 2040, that does change the conversation slightly, surely. Well, it, it does if there's a practical solution. Uh, but even the advocates of other alternative fuels uh, are not really talking about those fuels being available in any kind of scalable uh, levels uh, before 2030. So what do we do for the next uh, now eight, eight nine years? Mm. I mean, that's, that's a major question. Plus the fact that these other alternative fuels have a number of major issues, certainly starting with toxicity, uh, starting with with uh, energy density. How uh, how are we going to design ships if they have to carry two or three times as much fuel uh, to get to a deep sea voyage? Uh, 
And what does that do to the viability of, of, of the ship itself? If, if, you're, if, you're, if, if half uh, a, a large percentage of, of what you're moving is actually your fuel. Mm. Those, are, those are all issues and topics that, that people don't seem to want to really delve into yet. Uh, everything we hear is that, well, the science will take care of that. Well, maybe. Uh, but let's see what the practical realities are of what's going on. And the practical reality today is that the only fuel that's really available is liquefied natural gas. It does provide benefits, albeit not all the benefits we want. But we know that as we mix it with bioproducts, which are starting to grow, and, and if you look at the study we had the uh, University of Delft do a little over a year ago now, uh, there is a, a clear movement around the world to more bioproducts. We see them available in, in, in Europe and, and in North America. We see them starting to be used. And then ultimately, as we get to the hydrogen-based green fuels, look, uh, natural gas is just another derivative of those hydrogen-based fuels. So we, we have a very clear pathway. Um, and the beauty of it, I believe, is that we provide, LNG provides benefits today, not mm. 10 years from now, not an unknown time from now. We know it's safe. It's been used for over 50 years now. And, and we know it's scalable. And, and we know it's, it's, it's available now in, um, in, in many major, most major ports around the world. We now see about 50 bunker vessels uh, either, either available or, or under construction to be available within the next year or two. And that whole process has, has grown very, very substantially. And that certainly seems to be the logic that is bought by a significant portion of ship owners who are looking at longer term contracts backed by reliable uh, demand. And they are saying, we need to make a decision now, our customers demand it. And at the very least, you're looking at, you know, 20 to 30% increases in efficiency that will last us through this transition, regardless of how long that timeline is. Ultimately, this is a good investment. The counter, of course, is that you then get people worried about these statements that people are not going to charter from 2040 onwards. And then we have the issue of stranded assets. Do you, do you think there is a danger that if the tide turns sufficiently in terms of the customer's perception, not necessarily the ship owners, but their customers, that we are going to be facing uh, a generation of stranded assets if the political speed overtakes the market? Absolutely not, uh, because there is a reality to everything that has to happen. There is a reality to international trade, and there is a reality to shipping. There is a reality to the fact that shipping represents about 3% of the world's uh, issues as it relates to uh, greenhouse gases. There's a reality as to what you can and cannot do. Putting the Putting your foot on the accelerator is great. It needs to happen. There's no question about that. However, there are practical issues involved. 
There are practical issues of safety. There are practical issues of vessel design and, and energy density. There are practical issues of just how quickly can a fleet of 60,000 or so deep sea vessels be turned upside down and changed dramatically. The change is happening. The change is happening very quickly. But we also know that it takes a number of years to design and build a vessel, a deep sea vessel. And we can only change so much so quickly. We also need to remember that uh, many of the statements that are being made talk about 2040. Well, oh. that's almost 20 years away. Can you imagine how much change we're going to have over the next 20 years? Just look back to, uh, to the millennium in 2000. And the fact that the world was going to come to an end at, at, at the millennium because of computer issues. And look at what's transpired for, since then over the last 20 years. And what do we think is going to go happen over the next 20 years going forward? We have to be very, very careful as to, as, as to statements that we make and positions that we take uh, without really thinking about the unintended consequences. And that's going to be very important when we talk about future fuels as, as we've seen in the past. And this is the danger. I suspect you're probably right when it comes to the ship owners. They, they know only too well the longevity of the financial decisions they are making today. However, the statements from the likes of the World Bank, the Green Lobby and, and, and several prominent cargo interests, that could yet influence the political debate via the decisions from the financiers and the regulators. And that's where we come into more of a political question. If the likes of the Poseidon principles are, are um, backed into a corner, if the regulators are forced to make decisions because of popular public opinion, that then has a direct consequence in terms of the financial decisions that are being made with the best intentions today. And that's the bit that you probably can't control. And, you know, that is probably more into the realm of opinion rather than the fact that you mentioned at the outset. Well, I think it's important in, in all decisions that we make uh, that we that we that we think about facts. Um, I know sometimes facts are inconvenient. Um, <laughs> But facts are nonetheless what they are. And, and the reality is that uh, uh, the alternative fuels that we're talking about are, are, are eight to 10 years away. They're, 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 they're not in this decade. And most people will acknowledge that, at least not to any scale. Certainly test levels, but not to scale. So what do we do? What, what do we do? And the other thing that's of great concern is the fact that a number of people are trying to get prescriptive. That is, they're saying, this is the answer. This is the only answer. And we know from shipping that that's just not the case. It may be a, a good answer for short sea shipping, but deep sea shipping is a different animal. And we need to look at what really can happen? What can we really do over the next weeks and months and, and, and years as we're looking for these 
for these for these other solutions. Well, the first thing we can do is we can take that 23 percent uh, greenhouse gas savings that we get from the high pressure uh, LNG engines. We can take that and then we can add the biofuels that are becoming available and we can we can get to the next level and then as we develop hydrogen based fuels natural gas can be another hydrogen based fuel just like ammonia or methanol or any other fuels that people may think about as 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 a derivative of the of the hydrogen carriage so the pathway is still there and it's very very important that regulators and politicians keep an open mind as to what the real solutions will be because anybody that tells you today that x fuel is the answer and is the only answer that's inappropriate that's just wrong because just as there's a basket of fuels today and has been a basket of fuels for decades, there will be a basket of fuels in the future to drive different kinds of vessels, different kinds of deployments, uh, different kinds of requirements, different kinds of availability of fuel. So we really, we're, we're, at, a, we're at a very important turning point here where, where we need to continue to to uh, to fund all the different researches, we need to do uh, demonstration projects. We need to do those things, but we cannot become prescriptive within the political uh, and the regulatory environment. Let's talk briefly, if you will, about the methane issue. Uh, you know, as we talk, COP is uh, underway. We've got President Biden about to uh, underscore his own green credentials by unveiling an action plan to control methane. It is a large public topic. And of course, with LNG, methane as a, as a byproduct or methane slip via the engine uh, production, uh, combustion, sorry, you know, that becomes a real problem. Do you think that is a resolvable engineering problem or is that an inherent part of dealing with LNG and shipping? No, I mean, we know that in the high pressure systems, uh, which uh, uh, when when uh, when I was involved in uh, in building the uh, the world's first LNG powered container ships, uh, we we opted for the high pressure system. Uh, we know that in the in the high pressure system, there's uh, there's neg negligible uh, methane slip and on the uh, on a uh, tank to wake basis. Uh, and we also know uh, from uh, from various announcements and various work that's been done over the last couple of years, uh, that the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers of the of the of the low pressure systems and of the four stroke engines, uh, have made significant uh, uh, changes in terms of of the design and and the combustion cycles. And we're told now that uh, the slip is, is, is almost half of what it was and that they have anticipations that uh, over the next couple of years, they will continue to deal with those issues and, and that the problem, uh, at least on the combustion side, uh, will be negligible uh, over the next uh, many years. Now, will they be able to do that? 
they've made great strides so far. Uh, so yeah, I think they will be able to do that. Um, but when we talk about slip, then let's talk about uh, nitrous slip that, uh, that that we may see from from other alternative fuels. Let's look at um, a full well to wake study on these other alternative fuels, none of which has been done, at least not to uh, our understanding. So we need to be very, very careful uh, as we go through this dialogue to, to ensure that we are covering all the bases for all the fuels, all the potential future fuels, and not just shoveling a few uh, issues uh, under the rug because we think that, oh, science can take care of that or or science will take care of that. Mm. But I mean, there, there are a generation of low pressure engines out there in operation that do have a sizable problem. Some of the, the cruise ships running on low pressure engines, that the methane slip from those engines is significant. I think the cruise ships, most of the cruise ships are working on, uh, 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 on, on low pressure engines, yes. And, and those will need to be refitted or whatever changes the, I'm not a technical person, but whatever changes the OEMs are making, uh, likely will be, uh, uh, will be retrofitted on, on many of those engines as they have in the past. Mm. And you mentioned the well to wake issue and the fact that, you know, we are yet to see those calculations really be applied universally. Do you, do you think it changes the debate when we start talking about well to wake emissions rather than the current standard of, of tank to wake and for those listeners not familiar with that debate I, we will insert some details in the in, in the notes and, and refer you to previous podcasts but there is a significant difference in the way we are effectively accounting for the carbon depending on how you look at it absolutely absolutely we we need to have a level playing field and that level playing field uh says that we all need to look at things the same way by the same token we need to have these life cycle analyses done on on these other fuels uh, even if uh, initially just on a theoretical basis because we need to look for the unintended consequences of of these various alternatives just as people look at uh, at slip uh, as a as a product of of, of some of the uh, lng combustion at the same time we need to look at the unintended consequences of these other fuels. We need to look at the safety issues. We need to look at, at, at the combustion issues. We need to look at how much pilot fuel is required. We need to look at energy density. Uh, we, we need to look at all of those things so that we are properly educated so that the right decisions can be made in the long term. If we don't do that, we really risk uh, going down the wrong rabbit hole, if you will. We really risk going in the wrong direction, spending another five to 10 years and all of a sudden saying, oh, that wasn't exactly right. We, 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 we started to do that some decades ago with, uh, with, with the nuclear fuel option and then decided that that was not appropriate for commercial activities. So I'm not suggesting that uh, any of the other alternative fuels or anything like that. However, there are unintended consequences of things that we do. 
and we need to be sure that we've got those covered. We understand what they are. We understand what the positives are. We understand what the negatives are. And let's just not focus on positives, but also identify negatives, just as we do with liquefied natural gas and with bioproducts and ultimately with, uh, with renewable products. We need to do that with all products. We need to do it openly and with great transparency. Wonderful. Peter Keller, Chairman of CLNG, thanks very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to join you.